Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and tax practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Robin Erskine, who is a partner with Brooke Bird, a specialist insolvency firm based in Camberwell in Melbourne. Robin is a fellow of CPA Australia, a chartered accountant, a registered liquidator, registered trustee, and a former president of the Australian Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association. She has been a partner at Brook Bird for 27 years and was appointed to the board of CPA Australia in October 2017. Robin is also deputy chair of the Small Medium Practices Committee at the International Federation of Accountants, otherwise known as IFAC, and the chair of IFAC's SMPC Ethics Task Force. She has tirelessly represented the profession for many decades. Robin holds a Bachelor of Business. Robin, welcome to Taxiac. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. This is going to get complicated having two Robins. This is the first <laughs> time this has ever happened. Indeed, indeed. But can I just say, Robin, I wanted to say th- um, congratulations to you because you have just been awarded the very prestigious Women in Finance Awards for the Thought Leader of the Year. That's just fabulous. I'm really, I'm really thrilled for you. Thank you very much. And a great recognition of what you do for the profession. And I think a lot of us know the, the work that you do. So, so congratulations. Thank Indeed. you. It was a, a lovely evening and um, I'm very proud and it was unexpected. I was um, I knew as a finalist, I did not expect to win. So yeah, it is a thrill. Great. Thank Good you. to hear. So today we're going to be talking about the world of insolvency, which is where you live. Mm. And we're going to work our way through what does this look like and the ATO's involvement in liquidations and the trends and, and Phoenix activity and some proposed legislative changes. But I wanted to start with, why were you drawn to insolvency? Because it's never been an area that interested me particularly. <laughs> I think it takes a special breed of accountant to become an well, insolvency expert. I could say exactly the same about tax, Robin. But, <laughs> uh, look, I did not set about to have a career as an insolvency practitioner. I, I didn't have this weird and wonderful you know, affliction of cutting off heads off dolls or anything strange like that as a child. Um, so I did fall into it, but uh, once I landed in insolv- the world of insolvency, I realised for me this was the career that I wanted. It's, it's a, it's a great, um, it is a great career. It's really, it's really different. It's a different discipline in accounting. Um, I never know what type of work I'm going to be doing from day to day. It's project based, so. Often they say people that land in insolvency have short attention spans because it, you know, we don't have the same clients. Mostly we don't have the same clients. They're not annual circulate. clients that come back to do yeah. compliance work each year. Correct, correct. So new people, new jobs, new types of industries. I can be working on something in retail one day and uh, in the morning and in the afternoon working on uh, construction or a trucking um, company, so it's really quite diverse. And you... so building relationships would be different or difficult even because you're not building up those long-term relationships that other practitioners do over many years. Yes, yes and no. My relationships are with obviously the people who refer me work and they, they are relationships that you build up over many years. 
uh, and also the relationships I have with people that I need to surround myself with uh, to, for me to be able to do my job um, both in my practice but also uh, because it's such a specialised area and you have to be able to draw on experts so I have a range of people that I can draw on their expertise uh, to be able to help me do do what I need to do. You would have seen both ends of the spectrum so you would have seen the voluntary administrations where it's basically a member of, of a company, a shareholder of a company arranging for the liquidation. It's a choice, it's amicable, there's no animosity. But at the other end of the spectrum, you must have seen some more difficult or even ugly situations. Mm, it does come with the turf of being an insolvency practitioner. And that's one of the things that um, can at times uh, deter people from uh, entering that field is the side where you have to um, go into a situation where you're really not invited to be there and that can be a little bit controversial and confronting at times uh, but in the main um, and I think it comes down to developing a style uh, about how you exercise your duties as an insolvency practitioner the law provides us with a lot of power uh, but if you uh, go about it with some uh, empathy and uh, sympathy for the for the people uh, you usually get a some really uh, good results um, but yeah from time to time you, you you do find people are just very difficult to get along with and um, they are challenging can you share one of your more interesting experiences with us well I have many, many stories. Some of them I could never, ever repeat again. <laughs> but uh, I, I recall uh, going off one day. Uh, I'd been appointed as the administrator to a company that ran a nightclub. And it was during the day. And I needed to uh, meet with the directors uh, to... Uh, I was about to take the appointment. I hadn't actually uh, been appointed as yet. And I had arranged to meet the directors uh, on site of the nightclub that they had been running. And I had arranged for the locks to be changed because one of the things that we have to do is uh, secure the assets to make sure they don't go walk about because people tend to get a little upset if the assets uh, are removed. Uh, so I'd arranged a locksmith to, to meet me out there to change the locks. And when I got there, the locksmith uh, had opened up the premises and had let the directors in. And I said to the locksmith, hey, you know, you should, shouldn't have done this. Um, you, you know, you're placing the assets at risk uh, and uh, you'd been told to change the locks and that's what you should have done. And the locksmith just turned around to me and said, lady you have got no idea who you're dealing with so of course I um you know I, I said oh yes I do I know who you I know you know I'm the insolvency practitioner and you're the locksmith and I tell you what to do and um you do it and uh later did I realize that he had let them in because these two directors had very very colorful pasts and were may have been well known to Vic Pol. Uh, through um, a series of altercations that they had settled with weapons drawn at 60 paces. So uh, the, the locksmith just said, yeah, I'm just not getting caught in the middle of that. So he was probably, he was probably uh, 
the right one on the day. So we could almost yeah. describe them as underworld type <laughs> figures. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. So can we perhaps start with some definitions for those who don't work in insolvency? And I'm thinking also of the, the more junior practitioners out there who might be listening to this. Um, quick definitions, court liquidation. Mm. Court liquidations are, as what they say, they are liquidations where the court orders the appointment of the liquidator. Uh, so generally that is on the request of a creditor. So a creditor will go to the court and they, they call it a, a petition. They petition the court for a liquidator to be appointed. From time to time, other parties can also uh, seek uh, the orders from the court for a, a liquidator to be appointed and they can be ASIC, for example, uh, or uh, shareholders who feel that uh, they uh, their rights are being uh, abused. Uh, so it's um, the rights of minority shareholders, the protection of the law over that. Or it can be where you've got two directors who are absolutely at loggerheads and cannot make a decision one way or the other and the uh, court will be asked to intervene and appoint an independent person. But the most common uh, form of court liquidation is where a creditor will go to the court and say, we're owed money, can you please have a liquidator appointed to um, take control and realise the assets? How does that differ from a creditor's voluntary liquidation? A creditor's voluntary liquidation really does confuse a lot of people because they think, well, um, the creditors then obviously pass the resolution to put the company into liquidation where a creditor's voluntary liquidation is initiated by the shareholders or the directors who in the small end of town is usually the, uh, the director and the shareholders are one and the same. But uh, the shareholders pass the resolution to appoint the company. But the difference between creditors' voluntary liquidation and court liquidation is that the court is involved in one where the other is a voluntary uh, resolution passed by the shareholders but on the same basis that the company is insolvent. But it doesn't involve the court? No. Okay. We should also clarify the difference between a creditor's voluntary liquidation and a member's voluntary liquidation. Creditor's voluntary liquidations are for insolvent companies. Uh, Member's voluntary liquidations are for solvent companies. A registered liquidator can only be appointed to do a creditor's voluntary liquidation, where in a member's voluntary liquidation, you do not have to be a registered liquidator to be appointed the liquidator. Although in the main, you see most of the time that the liquidators are registered liquidators as well. But both are initiated by the the members or the shareholders of the company? Correct. Okay. Receiverships. Receiverships, uh, you generally speaking, the one that people are most familiar with are uh, is where a secured creditor, i.e., a financier or a bank, will appoint a a receiver pursuant to their security charge. Uh, the other type of receivership, which is less common, is where a court appoints a court-appointed receiver. Uh, Their duties are are different. Uh, Receiver's duties are different to a liquidator who has a duty to act for all creditors where a receiver that is appointed, for example, by a bank is primarily there to look after the interests of the appointee. And correct me if I'm wrong, but receiverships would generally involve trying to keep the business afloat to keep it operating, whereas the purpose of a liquidation is to shut down a company. 
A liquidation is to bring me in is to bring a company to its end. Um, a receivership can involve uh, a, a trade on, uh, but it also can be just a can be just a, a mechanism of uh, realising the assets. And we see it from time to time in the retail sector. Yeah, you'll often see receivers, uh, although since, uh, particularly since the Royal Commission into the banking industry, the numbers of the appointments of receivers has declined dramatically Um, for a variety of reasons. It uh, may be that the banks are more... Uh, concerned about their public profile and do not want to be seen pushing people into an insolvency appointment. Uh, but uh, yeah, you do see them in the uh, utilised in uh, the retail sector. You see them utilised in, uh, for example, there is uh, the uh, recycling um, issue that we have at the moment here in Victoria. There's been receivers appointed to that company. Uh, to try and uh, turn it around. Okay, what about voluntary administration? Voluntary administration is not new to the Corporations Act. It's been around a number of years. Uh, Primarily it is a tool to try and help a company that is insolvent or about to become insolvent uh, either restructure via a deed of company arrangement or to conduct a winding down in an orderly fashion that provides a better return to the creditors. Um, Sadly, I think since the introduction of voluntary administrations, we haven't seen them used as much as what we had all hoped when they were introduced back in the 90s uh, as a form of restructuring for companies. And that is because, again, I think it's quite sad, but here in Australia, we tend to uh, still have a view of that failing is something that should be punished and uh, consequently people are very hesitant to do business with companies that have gone into voluntary administration but um, as I said I think that's a wasted opportunity. Um, People would also know it as VA so that expression you might be familiar with. And then moving away from the companies, personal bankruptcy. So this is now about individual circumstances. Yes. Uh, well, you've got um, three issue, three uh, alternatives when you've got um, personal insolvency. Uh, first, obviously, is a straight bankruptcy, which is um, for a period of three years where a registered trustee is appointed to handle what we call your uh, bankrupt estate and the trustee's role is to, uh, similar to a liquidator, is to collect the assets, realise the assets for the benefit of the creditors and distribute those. Uh, Trustees, the same as liquidators, have extensive uh, investigative uh, powers uh, so that if there's been dispositions made uh, that uh, can be clawed back for the benefit of creditors, they can do that. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, bankruptcy is for a period of three years. It can be longer in certain circumstances and it can be shorter. Prior to the recent federal election, there was a bill before the um, parliament to reduce the period of bankruptcy down to one year, which was really controversial. Uh, With the election, that fell away and it has not been reintroduced. It's a lapsed bill. Yeah. 
And is there any indication that the government might resurrect that or it's one of these more than 80 tax measures that we're still waiting on as well? (laughs) Uh, Look, I think you need to have a bit of a crystal ball there. Um, As as I said, it was not... It was popular in various circles, but uh, there were quite a lot of concern raised by insolvency practitioners and also the credit fraternity about the consequences of reducing bankruptcy to one year, uh, the unintended consequences that it might make it just too easy and people would uh, create some or some really poor behaviour um, by uh, reducing it down to one year. So the other alternative which is available to people in financial difficulties personally is a personal insolvency Uh, arrangement under part 10 of the bankruptcy act so it's a formal arrangement uh, whereby a person says look I don't want to go bankrupt for all sorts of reasons Uh, it could be because it uh, has um, it has poor outcomes for employment purposes for for people Uh, it could be just because they're worried about the stigma although stigma has really declined of recent years in relation to going bankrupt Uh, but a a part 10 arrangement or a personal insolvency arrangement allows people to enter into an arrangement with their creditors where the creditors either will will agree to accept a, a less amount than what they are otherwise owed in full and final settlement of their debt or it can be used as a moratorium for someone to get back on their feet so they're uh, again they're, they're perhaps not used as much as they have been in the past uh, but they are a, a really good uh, method of, of um, resolving people's financial difficulties if the circumstances fit and then for people who have uh, a low level of debt and we see that more in the consumer space there is a, a uh, an agreement called a debt agreement uh, but they are uh, really only for people that have debts around about a hundred thousand dollars so and uh, whilst they are quite uh, popular you really do have to ask the question as to whether people can afford to offer anything to their creditors because sometimes the uh, people that they are designed to help are also people who have very modest incomes and for me I'm always thinking that those people probably can't afford you know to to make any payment to their creditors simply because they need to be able to to live um, and not lavishly but you need to still be able to you know feed and clothe yourself and your family. Okay I think it's a good summary of just the, the basic concepts. Have you got any statistics or figures on the level of bankruptcies or, or what are the trends in Australia? Um, I understand you've been tracking SME debts for, for some time. Yeah. So what are you seeing out there? The the general space at the moment in relation to insolvency is um, still we're seeing you know we're seeing some uplift but not significant uplift. And uh, my colleagues uh, in the insolvency profession and certainly uh, at Arita are really on record of saying that they believe that there is, you know, recessionary times looming. Um, We haven't seen that equate to uh, huge insolvency rises as we saw perhaps, you know, in the 1990s, which was when we had our last recession. So it's an awful long time. There's a whole bunch of people that 
never live through a recession and don't see the signs. So it'll will, it will be really interesting. I don't wish to fan any potential embers here, but there is talk increasingly that figures may indicate we're heading towards a recession and there'll be some people that have not lived through the one. Mm. Um, these have a huge impact on businesses and the, and the state of the economy more generally. Oh, they do. And I, whilst the numbers are, are, are still looking relatively you know, modest, uh, I have, and I, and I think I've, I've said to the, this to you previously, Robin, that I have... I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week if I wanted to, um, you know, to be appointed to every job that I see walk through my my door. But frankly, the businesses that I see have never been so broke or so insolvent. And cash poor? Yeah, cash poor. There's so many of them. And it's been like that for, for quite some time. So I have, you know, and that troubles me because I just feel we've been putting a lot of Band-Aids on things uh, and um, yeah, at the end of the day they've got to come off. Why do you think that is? So they're still profitable businesses? Um, they're just cash poor. No, no, they're not profitable. Okay, so they're, they're not profitable. Making. They have not been profitable for many, many years, and they, in the main, have uh, continued to uh, limp along. And they're all—we call them really zombie companies because they're just—they're barely alive. They, you know, people eke an existence out of them because they really have got very little option and they don't know anything else and tomorrow's going to be a better day and they just keep going. And for a lot of them, the only reason that they've been able to continue on is because they haven't been paying their tax. Uh, So that's one of the first creditors to arise. Yes, yes. And... Because and if you stop paying your trade suppliers, then your business they dries up. Supply. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Uh, so uh, often, and particularly nowadays, when a company does ultimately go into some sort of insolvency arrangement, people, um, people as in creditors, say, "Well, gee, we didn't know. We had no idea. They were on thirty days. They were within terms." And that's true because they they do pay within terms in the main. It's only when the merry-go-round stops that they get left, the creditors get left high and dry. But because if they don't, they do get placed on stop supply. But the taxation department um, doesn't and cannot put people on stop supply. So uh, there is a whole range of tools, uh, which you know, no doubt we'll talk about this morning, uh, uh, that the ATO are being far more proactive. Um, there's certainly an appetite, and I see that as a change. But just to, you know, to give you an idea, this is not something that uh, is a 2019 problem. I started to track these stats about um, small business debt back in, I think, 2013, uh, I'd been asked to do a session uh, down at um, the CPA conference on uh, insolvency and looking at the early warning signs about why people go broke. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious, you know, 
how can I poss what can I possibly talk about for to keep people entertained about how people go can go broke for a, for a whole morning as you know that can be a challenging concept to keep people's um, interest and I thought oh I was doing some research and I came across the ATO's annual report and um, it, it was really quite an interesting read and uh, uh, I, I jokingly say that I have a very dull life that I actually sit and read the ATO's annual <laughs> report but I do I did find it absolutely riveting because back then it, it was um, it, you know back then it, the small business debt was not insignificant and each year I when when the report comes out I read up about small business debt and just to give you an idea when I first started looking at this small business debt was running at uh, um, around 10 billion dollars this is around 2013 that was in 2012 okay and in 2018 uh, the small business debt had increased to $15 billion. That's collectible debt. So that's not the debt that they've written off um, as uncollectible. That's what they consider to be collectible debt. And 63% of the ATO's collectible debt relates to small business. How do you define small for this purpose? Uh, it's, uh, I understand, if my memory serves me correct, that it's, uh, it's uh, turnover less than 10 million. Okay, so the SBE definition that we're correct, used to. Correct, yep. correct. So it's alarming and see, to me, that's, look, and I, I can't say what it was um, pre-2012 uh, pre because I wasn't tracking it, but each year it's just been, you know, I, I graph this, again, sad, sad life that I lead, uh, I graph it and I could see that the trend was up, 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 up. Now we're starting to have that hear more about that now than what we've heard for a very long time, and it, it will. And that conversation is well and truly overdue, but it tells you that there's a problem in our in our engine room, and um, that's why I say that when people are talking about recession, I think they really need to 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 listen. We still hear figures of things like 60% of small businesses in Australia will close in the first three years. So if you can get to a five-year-old business, you're doing very well in this country. And that's a sad state of affairs. Mm, it is. And I think uh, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things that need to be done when people start up in business. We shouldn't, um, we shouldn't try to make it overly difficult for people to to start a business you know it's important to have those entrepreneurs they are the people that will grow our country provide jobs and we should you know we should provide support for them but we need to provide the the safety net you know that there, there needs to be an increased financial literacy there people who start a business what some of the problems that I see with with those businesses who fail very early is that they have a great idea and a burning ambition but they don't they set themselves up to fail because they don't get uh, their structures right they don't uh, they you know, they might be, if you think about a builder, they, they have great ideas about, I will build the big, biggest and the best, but they don't understand that they need to um, understand how much it costs 
to build the biggest and the best house because there's no point in building it if they're running if they're actually making a huge loss if they can't sell it for the price they want correct correct so really to you know for my advice and remember I don't do normal accounting and I don't have that type of arm to my practice but my advice to small business is to get yourself a good accountant because they will be able to help them with their structures. They will be able to have the conversation to say, great idea, but we've either we've got to either tweak it or change it or um, reshape it so that all of your great ideas become profitable ideas and you're not a statistic in a couple of years. And they're steered in the right direction. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. So if we can now have a chat about some of the policies the government has either implemented or is in the process of implementing to target Phoenix operators. Um, Most people understand what a a Phoenix company is or a Phoenix operator, but for those who don't, I recommend you go back and watch Harry Potter, Chamber of Secrets, (laughs) movie number two, and you may remember that Harry was called into Dumbledore's office to watch, um, uh, to be disciplined. And whilst he was waiting, he was watching Fawkes, the, um, the, the mythical bird, the phoenix, which before his eyes burst into flames, he got all distraught until he realised that out of the ashes was a brand new bird. Correct. And of course, a, a phoenix is a, a mythical bird, but it's a metaphor for a company that is placed deliberately into liquidation to avoid paying its debts typically the ATO, but it can include third-party creditors or employees even, which is even worse, I think, morally, Um, although morally you should be paying the tax office too, so I don't know where the moral lines start and stop here. And then they're they're reborn. So the the directors will move on to a brand-new company, they'll move across clients, they'll move across contracts and employees and workers and begin again. And the serial operators will do it again and again and again. Uh, It's gone on for decades and there've been multidisciplinary task forces put together mm. to try and tackle this. So I just thought we could touch on some of the initiatives that the government is implementing. Um, I'm more familiar with the tax law implications, you're more familiar with the Corpse Act, but the concept of a straw director, do you come across this? Because I'm hearing about it, and I don't think a lot of practitioners are familiar with that expression. Uh, well, I... It would be interesting to hear what you think is a strong okay. director to see whether it is if, if it matches with mine. I understand it to be essentially a director who is appointed to a company. So you'll have um, the initial director and they want to abscond, they want to bail, they want to get out of paying debts or liabilities. So they will seek typically someone who is homeless mm. or could be drug dependent but would love $10,000 to be... Uh, appointed the director of a company. They have no idea what that means. They have no assets behind them. And this person who has no fixed address and they may make up an address or or use one that has no basis, then becomes appointed to the director of the company. So when the creditors come knocking, there's someone there who basically is, is useless. Yes. That's how I understand it to operate. Yeah. 100% Robin, you well done. Uh, look, we do see that from time to time, not as often as what, it's not plague proportions, but there is a certain um, a certain type of insolvency that we see and they have all of those um, attributes and you see people who are jettisoned in at the, the you know, 11th hour and 59th minute to be the director um, and uh, they're often closely associated with Phoenix. 
So when you think about Phoenix, I, th I think it's really important to clarify that there are two, you, often people talk about Phoenix as a blanket Phoenix, but there are illegal Phoenix and then there's legal Phoenix. And the one that everybody gets terribly upset about is the illegal Phoenix, where the assets are removed with the intention of dudding the creditors, leaving them behind. Uh, and that, as you said, is, is mainly the tax department and employees. Uh, and they look after the people that they need to look after and nobody else. Uh, legal Phoenix is where the assets will be sold from company A to company B or old co to new co, but there is a fair and reasonable price uh, paid for those assets. And it's all on the books and there's yeah. no evasion or leakage or anything correct, like that? Correct, correct. Okay. So would you still associate that with Phoenix? They, because yes, they do. They do. That and worries me because I would always associate the word Phoenix with the illegal activity. Yeah, uh, and that's why it gets, um, it gets confused because there is no definition of Phoenix, um, which is another issue. Very true. Um, but it does confuse people because they say, oh, but it's unfair. I saw Bill, he was running his company out of that um, you know, address yesterday with those employees and he started up again um, doing the same thing. The fact is, is that if Bill has paid for the assets uh, and a proper price and it's investigated by a liquidator, um, then it's not illegal phoenix why would you do it though what are you achieving commercially by moving from one company literally starting to another company? again you know if you're bill the bill the plumber and the only thing you know how to do is is be a plumber if you've had a company that's gone into liquidation for a variety of reasons um, some of it sometimes it's through really no fault of their own it can be because uh, a customer went bad on them uh, then they, they start again and they should be allowed to start again and they are Bill the Plumber Mark II and hopefully Bill the Plumber Mark II will have learned a, a really hard lesson and Mark II will be very successful. But for those people who deliberately set out to defraud creditors, then that's a legal phoenix and there are, and there are strict um, penalties under the law that uh, attached to that both to directors which is why you see the straw director jettisoned in uh, you also see um, people who are advisors getting uh, caught up in that as well and that's probably a really important message for accountants because accountants can uh, can at times unintentionally get caught up in that pre-insolvency advice of aiding and abetting a client to breach the law innocently not realizing that's what they're doing because it, they they um, are trying to help their client but if they do it and they just move the assets and they don't pay for the assets then they are aiding and abetting their client to break the law and that that accountant will face punishment and it's a criminal liability so they really need to be very careful and the other thing to be very mindful of as an accountant is there's a whole range of people um, and if you google you know google insolvent or not insolvency but if you google debt help or um, can't pay my bills there will be a myriad of people that will pop up and say they can help there are very few people that are actually um, 
have the qualifications to help and there's a whole bunch of people out there who prey on people in financial difficulties and ensuring that people in financial difficulties get the right advice from the right people will go a long way in ensuring that uh, illegal phoenix activity is reduced. I had a look at the ASIC website and there's actually quite a bit of information on there about what happens when you can't pay your debts or all sorts of other issues relating to solvency and, and company activities. So it's well worth having a look at that too. Yes, it, yeah, it is. They've got some good resources, as have uh, AFSA being the uh, personal regulator as well on, um, on uh, insolvency issues. Some tax measures that have been introduced to combat Phoenix activity, one of them started 1 July 2018, and this was to do with the property developers who weren't remitting their GST. And the numbers that Treasury provided were quite startling. In the the five years leading up to November of 2017, there were 3,731 individuals who engaged in this activity of collecting GST from new residential premises being sold and not remitting it to the tax office. They controlled collectively over 12,000 insolvent entities in this five-year period. They had not paid 1.8% billion dollars of GST revenue and that had to be written off as uncollectible and along the construction phase they had claimed 1.2 billion dollars of input tax credits. So this was a three billion dollar problem in just five years and as a result of that they've basically said well developers we can't trust you to remit the GST because you were collecting it and then spending it on other properties or paying off loans or paying contractors at best and at worst you're engaging in Phoenix activity. So now the purchaser of the property has to pay a a withholding amount, as they call it, and this gets sent to the tax office at settlement. Um, So we've got those measures in place. We've now got a reintroduced bill that's hit Parliament after lapsing at the election, but it's been reintroduced. The Treasury Laws Amendment Combating Illegal Phoenixing Bill of 2019, currently before the House of Reps, and this is going to extend the director penalty notice regime to unpaid GST, and luxury car tax and wine equalisation tax. At the moment, of course, the the DPNs, where a director is personally liable for unpaid debts of a company, it's confined to PAYG withholding and superannuation guarantee. But this is going to extend it into the realms of the the GST and and wet and luxury car tax. So it's very significant. Mm. Uh, Well, I think that's, again, Robin, just a a sign of the times of the changing attitude at... uh, with people not paying tax. Um, as, as we spoke about earlier, it's not a new thing, but I, there's certainly been a change in the direction or the, an appetite at the ATO to enforce proper tax compliance. And these tools, so these changes in legislation is about making people accountable. Um, it, you know, to have the model where you don't pay your uh, GST on the uh, sale of a property puts you at an unfair advantage. Of course. If you're not paying your tax and you're competing against a business uh, that pays its tax and its pricing is all around um, including a tax element in that, you're you're really um, at a greater advantage and potentially you, uh, a company that's not paying its tax, 
uh, is winning business and taking business away from companies that are trying to do the right thing. So it's really great that, the, from from my point of view, I think it's really great that the, that um, these new measures are in place or coming into place. And I'm hoping that the uh, the illegal phoenixing bill come goes through. I'd like to see some tweaks in that. The the straw man um, issue, you know, they have not included the director identification numbers in that uh, bill. I'd like to think that they would um, so put those in. Just to explain that, that was, um, again, a measure that was uh, a policy ahead of the election, and we presume it's still a policy, but um, it's all been put on hold for the, um, the election period. This was going to, it was a bill before Parliament, um, this was going to introduce a director identification number. So a specific number allocated to an individual director that would remain with them for life you'd be given 28 days to apply for one for a new company. Uh, existing directors were going to be given a longer period, and I, I think it was something like 15 months um, in order to obtain one. Many have said, well, why can't they just use the TFN? But the TFN, of course, is private. And I see this being a bit more like an ABN, which is publicly available. But crucially, if you apply, uh, I'll rephrase that, you don't apply to be a director. If you notify ASIC that you're going to be the director of a company, you tell them information like your name and your address and your birth date and country of birth. None of this is verified by ASIC. They just mm. accept it. And so you could tell them anything and people are. So the idea of the director identification number is it would be verified back to identity documents. And I think that's a really good thing. Oh, so absolutely. I know it's another layer of so-called bureaucracy, but I, I think it will provide some transparency over the activities of directors and their association with these companies. And it'll certainly give certainty to people who are looking to do business with a company and they want to know who they're doing business with. They'll be able to identify the director at the moment. It's just too easy for it to be um, ambiguous. And you know, when I try and find directors sometimes, the, you, know, you look at the list of people who have slightly similar names and it, it can be just a, a spelling uh, or a hyphen. I, you know, my mother gave me a hyphenated name, and I'm even difficult to find on the director when I do a director search of me because I have a hyphenated name. I have my I'm, my legal name is Robin Hyphen Lee Erskine, and uh, you know I also go under the name of Robin Erskine. So when I do a director search on me, it's not conclusive, um, let alone if I was trying to actually rot the system. Mm. Another measure that's worth commenting on is there is exposure draft legislation being released. Now, it was uh, previously a measure ahead of the election but hadn't been enacted, so um, we're at exposure draft stage now. And this is going to permit the Commissioner the power to disclose details of business tax debts to the debt collection agencies or the credit reporting bureaus. So the specifics will be that if the debt is $100,000 or more of a business, that's an ABN registered business, this is not individual debts, and it's been outstanding for more than three months, and you're not engaging with the ATO, so in other words, you haven't got a payment arrangement in place, then they will report these details out to the, the debt collection agencies. And this is just good old-fashioned commercial pressure. So the next time that business applies for a bank overdraft or seeks equipment finance, then the financier may say, well, if you can't pay your tax debts, we're hesitant to extend you any line of credit. What I wanted to ask you, Robin, is already I'm hearing the banks tend to request details of the running balance account anyway. They already know what debts are outstanding when they're approving finance. The same for equipment finance. 
So to me, the missing link in all this, where this is going to make a difference, is the trade creditors, the, the trade suppliers, who currently generally would not be privy to that information. Now, I see this as a real game changer. And I've sat in many creditors' meetings where the creditors have been absolutely outraged uh, to find that this company that has just gone into liquidation owes the taxation department hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the creditors say, if I had have known that the company was indebted to the tax department in those types of sums, I would never have done business with it. So again, it is about levelling the playing field and allowing businesses when they are choosing companies to trade with to do so with with great um, transparency uh, so I, I see it as a really welcome piece of um, law if it does go through it's been as you know been around um, promised for quite some time and there is some concerns being raised uh, for example I think the small business uh, commissioner has raised concerns that it could be used uh, willy-nilly and would really impact on small business because as we know small business is probably where the major debt um, levels lie with the ATO but um, certainly it's going to be and I know it is it's welcomed by the credit fraternity. Look when it was first proposed it was going to be a $10,000 threshold yes so it was a very welcome announcement in last year's mid-year economic and fiscal mm. outlook that it was increased up to $100,000. Um, look, the easy solution is talk to the tax office because if there's a payment arrangement in place, then this information will not get disclosed. This is uh, and something I talked about with um, Greg Lewis from the Tax Practitioners Board in another context. It's when you go quiet, it's when you mm. go silent that they get worried. So as long as you're talking to the ATO, then your details are not going to be passed on. Yeah, and look, the ATO have been saying that, that um, sending that message... Uh, for for a number of years, and you know, payment programs uh, for small business have gone from over two point eight billion in dollars in the fifteen sixteen year to four billion dollars in the seventeen eighteen year. So, uh, obviously, there the figures speak for themselves. It's that the taxation department are there to uh, support viable businesses that are trying to do the right thing, uh, it is important for them to engage. But part of the problem when uh, people are in financial difficulties is actually accepting that they need help. Uh, that's a really tough conversation. And, and, one of, and I'm often told by people one of the hardest things that they do is make an appointment to come and see me. Um, the first step. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Can we talk about now the ATO's role in all of this? So we sometimes see that the ATO is uh, chasing a small business. There are tax debts mounting up. Um, we often see in a private context people seeking to be released on grounds of financial hardship. But usually the ATO debt is not the cause of their financial woes. It's poor financial management or overextension or whatever. So often the ATO is kind of the last piece in the puzzle, but it's often one of the biggest debts that's outstanding. So what are the, the range of options or measures or tools that the ATO can use to, to follow up debt? And they are extensive. And also the, the media attention. Um, we've got the, the Four Corners expose from April of 2018, where they were talking about the ATO's um, judgment in pursuing certain small businesses and how effective that is. So there's been a lot of talk about all of this. I must admit, I, I, I 
watched that Four Corners episode and I was a little sympathetic to the ATO because I know the size of debt that is there in businesses. The ATO, generally speaking, are the largest creditor in most insolvencies uh, and have been for a number of years now. They're, they're you know, seen to be a real contender or an alternative financier. The Bank of uh, the Australian Taxation yes. Office. Yes, and I don't think that's really what our taxes should be used for. So, uh, so to to say that the ATO perhaps are, you know, some people would say are heavy-handed. In my experience, they give everybody so many opportunities before they launch into uh, formal proceedings to either bankrupt a person or appoint a liquidator to a company. They have had. Uh, you know, some people would say too many chances. So there are enough letters and conversations There are so many letters. And, you know, we know that the tax department are using nudge technology or nudge communications to try and get people to do the right thing. It's They're making their communications easier for people to understand. Um, but they do have some really powerful tools. You know, they have uh, the direct penalty regime, which makes directors personally liable for failing to pay um, PAYG withholding, failing to pay superannuation. And, you know, honestly, if you're not paying your employees super, that you know that is almost theft, isn't it? I call it theft, Robin. I'm not going to mince my words on this one. If you don't pay withholding... We can debate the moral issues of whether you should be paying your obligations under the tax law to the federal government and whether there's a lack of services provided as a result. But not paying super is the equivalent of not paying your staff their remuneration. Mm. And whether they're accessing it straight away or in 40 years' time, I've always had an issue with employers who don't comply with their super obligations. You will find that their quality of life those people who haven't been paid their superannuation, their quality of life at some point in time will be drastically affected, detrimentally affected by their employer not paying their taxes, so uh, their superannuation. So I really do see what the taxation department and the fact that they are using these tools to make directors liable is a good thing. what about debt collectors? Because we always hear stories about agents saying now they're hassling us and they've called in the third-party debt collectors and, and we're trying to sort this out and they're on our back. Um, do you see this working effectively? Well, I think it's just another avenue that they're trying. And again, they I don't see my world that the ATO has used that as the first step. I see that as something that has that's very, very... Um, long in the chain and this comes back to if you've got a problem paying your tax the quicker that you um, identify that the quicker that you start looking at whether it can be fixed and how you're going to fix it the better the outcome will be and you won't have the debt collectors on your door garnishing notices yeah they're fatal because <laughs> they have the um, they have the uh, consequence of pretty much strangling a company of cash flow. So if the taxation department issued a uh, garnishee notice, that's you know your numbers up really. So uh, again, I they don't issue those in my experience without 
um, proper process due cause and uh, it's certainly usually as a sign of frustration because the taxpayer is just not engaging. Just so all our listeners understand, if you're not familiar with these, garnishee notices is a notice issued by the ATO to typically a bank or it could be a debtor or an employer where the notice is issued to these third parties to provide access to bank accounts or to wages that are going to be paid to someone or a debt that's going to be paid under a debtor arrangement. Um, so essentially money you think is available suddenly isn't. Mm. Or you, you, you can see uh, sometimes where there's been a sale of a property uh, and the taxation department will issue the notices to the bank and to the lawyer that's handling the settlement so that the taxpayer doesn't get their hands on the money because there is that lack of trust that they think that they that if they do get their hands on the money that'll just disappear. Two stories on um, garnishee notices that I heard many years ago, um, totally separate cases, but one involved a taxpayer who hadn't been paying their tax debt, and it was a personal tax debt. And I don't quite know why the ATO officer was at home at four o'clock on a weekday, but they happened to be in front of the torture. <laughs> Maybe they were sick that day. And they were watching Wheel of Fortune. And the contestant on the show, who was actually doing quite well money-wise uh, with the winnings, happened to be this taxpayer that he'd been chasing for some time. And so he called up Grundy's, that was the production house for the, um, the, the Channel 9 at the time, and they were running this program. And he said to them, look, I, I want to basically garnish the prize money. It's about $100,000 that you're about to pay this fellow because he owes the tax office a significant tax debt. And the voice on the other end of the phone said, don't you know these are not live shows? It's pre-recorded. <laughs> <laughs> some, some weeks earlier. Um, the second story related to a an ageing rock star. Now, I don't know who it was, but there are few of them left these days. Um, but someone from the 1960s who was in his prime many decades ago, uh, no longer in his prime, and was doing the rounds of various clubs and pubs. And the tax officer had been trying to collect this debt for some time. He was driving between Brisbane and the Gold Coast on the freeway, listening to one of the commercial radio stations. And on the program that afternoon was this singer. And he was talking about how life was and what he's doing now. And he wrapped up his interview with where he was playing that evening. So the tax officer issued the pub that evening or the club with a garnishee notice <gasps> saying, you're about to pay this particular individual and he owes us money so when he arrived to play his gig he got none of the money because it had already gone straight to the tax office and this happened something like 10 days in a row and so after over a week the taxpayer rang up the ATO and said look you've got me yeah I've been trying to avoid this but he said you have been hounding all these people and every time I arrive to play another gig there's one of these notices waiting for me so I give up I'm all yours <laughs> Yeah, now let's talk. <laughs> let's talk. That's the effect of it. Um, security bond notices. Have you had any experience with these? Uh, look, I haven't. I have not seen any, um, and I'm not sure that they're used as as often as what they could be. Have no, you they're seen not. Any? Um, I have heard of them, but they are limited. Um, they historically were issued in respect of property developers, but I'm not saying it's confined to that. But it's generally where the ATO forms a view that an amount is not going to be paid. And this would be based on past experience. And the ATO officers that I've spoken with over the years have talked about a pattern of behaviour. They said in some cases it's 
so obvious or blatant that when they go to name the new company, um, I'm not going to say that it was Company Alpha, the next one was Beta, the third one was Charlie, the third one was Delta, but you get the idea. So they know when Company Echo is about to be set up that mm. it's in this pattern. And so they will go to the, the taxpayer and say, look, here's a security bond notice. And it requires them to pay a bond, which the ATO holds effectively in trust, ahead of a liability that will become due. And it could typically be a property development where we know you're going to sell it in 18 months. We don't trust you to pay the GST or the income tax on that. So we'll collect this tax now, even though there isn't a legal liability that's arisen on assessment, but it collects it up front and then they apply it against the later amount. So it's the most egregious of cases. It's where... Uh, you've got someone who's got a pattern of behaviour and it is used sparingly. But it yes. is another tool they've got. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have not seen them used a lot, but um, I certainly know that, um, that that's in their toolbox. Departure prohibition orders. Look, um, yeah, I have seen them use these, um, again, so explain, sparingly. So let's explain what they are before we um, analyse them. These are notices issued to an individual to prevent them leaving the country or to prevent them exiting the country again. Um, Paul Hogan, of course, famously was issued with one to stop him leaving the country in respect of his unpaid and disputed amounts. So um, your experience with these? Well, my experience was really, again, it was a, it was a tool they used to... Um, have the conversation which should have been held without the person, without the need for, for ha obtaining a departure um, prohibition order. Um, so again, I don't see them using these very often, but um, they are very embarrassing for the, um, the recipient because usually they find out about it at the airport. Yes, they've so, basically done their duty-free shopping and about yes. to board. <laughs> And it's come with me. <laughs> yes. In fact, um, looking at the other way, sometimes they can issue these upon arrival. And I've heard stories where the ATO, look, I don't know if they're monitoring flights in real time or whether they just are, someone's on a watch list. But I've heard of people entering the country, you know, welcome to Australia, here's your duty-free shopping and your departure prohibition order or your notice of assessment mm. or your hex debt or whatever it is, is sitting over here. And the ATO has amazing intel when they're working with customs and immigration to be able to track yeah. the movement of individuals. There's a watch list um, that, and insolvency practitioners can put people on the watch list as well. Uh, again, that's why I know it's a, it's a tool, a handy tool to have in the toolbox, but not one that you can uh, use often and you can only use it in very exceptional circumstances. But it does create a whole bunch of... Um, uh, headaches for people because they literally are prevented from leaving the country. They can't return to jobs yep. or families or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And over the years, we've seen a few cases in our training notes where people have disputed the validity of the departure prohibition orders. Um, and I've seen them both upheld and I have seen them overturned as being um, invalid. Mm. But generally, they are issued validly. Um, and of course, the ATO can liquidate companies. Yes, yes, they and they do. Uh, they are one of the... Uh, probably more prolific um, parties that uh, take action in the courts appointing liquidators. So uh, it is something that they are doing more and more. What would be your advice to accountants? So um, you are predominantly dealing with smaller accountants because the larger firms, the big four, the second tier, typically have their own insolvency divisions. So when you're an insolvency practitioner, you're either working in a large firm 
or you run your own practice, which means the bulk of your work comes from smaller practitioners mm. who outsource this. So um, closing words of advice for accountants who don't specialise in insolvency, things to watch out for, um, how can they assist you or how can you assist them? There's a couple of messages and I think they're really important messages. One is understand what your good at and what you're not good at and if we go back to the start of this interview and I said well you know I sometimes laugh at people who can do tax because I have trouble spelling it Uh, because I you know I know that I'm not good at that area I know enough to be dangerous and that's it and people who think that they can do insolvency um, but don't do it every day all day um, can get themselves into all sorts of hot water. So a little bit of knowledge can actually be a dangerous thing? A little bit of knowledge can be dangerous if you think that you can you can be an insolvency practitioner when you're not registered. Uh, but a little bit of knowledge is good because it means that you can identify the issues and your network is, is where things become really important because you'll then be able to reach out to someone for advice. Um, because most people who uh, who are in financial difficulty will go in their will their first point of call will, will be with their accountant um, you know trusted advisor it's please help I don't know which way to turn and it's only when the accountant gets too close and you know accountants have special relationships with their clients and they try and try and try to fix a problem that sometimes they can't fix and by doing so they can cross the line from being a professional advisor which we have certain protections under the law to almost becoming a de facto director and that's not a good place to be and you risk uh, your professional standing you risk your professional um, your ability to earn an income if you're deemed to be a director and you you know face prosecution it's it's not as I said a good place to be I also see that um, accountants can, uh, in their, um, you know, trying to do again the right thing by their clients, can can do things that almost are illegal, and that's the aiding and abetting issue and potentially criminal liability. Why would you? We're do not just it? talking civil penalties here. No, no. And I just I look at it and I think, why would you do that? You need to be very careful. And in this day and age, for example, the ATO's use of data analytics they have, they can tell more about uh, taxpayers. Uh, you you know, Robin, that they've got a project where they're looking at tax agents now, they're rating all the tax agents, they're heat mapping the tax agents, they know the ones that are problematic, they know the ones that have got the problem clients, they sit there and say... Is it all? Is it just coincidental that this tax agent has all these clients that are in trouble, or is it a problem with the tax agent? And is I, it systemic? Yeah. In fact, this is an exact conversation that I had with Greg Lewis from the Tax Practitioners Board. We talked about: is it a one-off error, or something more reckless, or is it in fact across a, a number of clients in that particular practice? Yeah. The ATO is onto that. Absolutely. So I say to to accountants, just be very, very mindful of that because you don't want your own uh, ability to look after your own family and your own professional reputation um, ruined through consequences or unintended consequences. Um, 
But having said that, you know, it is quite rewarding to help a client that's gone through a tough time and to see them come out the other side can really make that client a very loyal and bolted on client who, you know, if they come out the other side, they will prosper again. And um, it, it's a good relationship and a great relationship for a, an accountant to have. So I'm not saying if you've got a client that's got financial difficulties, just drop them instantly. All I'm saying is that there are horses for courses and that they should, the accountant should get, um, get advice for their client and be very mindful of who they get advice from. Because as I said, there are a lot of people out there who say they can do um, turnaround and insolvency work, but really their only expertise is because they've been a bankrupt 10 times and a director of 20 failed companies. Um, they really need to make sure that they're dealing with people who who are you know, registered liquidators, registered trustees and members of ARETA. Thank you. Robin, thank you for coming in. Um, insolvency is not something that we deal in regularly in our world and we live in tax and it's always interesting to get another perspective and, and how that interacts with the tax law. So thank you. Thanks, Robin. It's been lovely. Good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, You'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.